Such a lovely passage from Mark's gospel this morning, don't you think? Plucking eyes and cutting feet. Well, we've got to, to deal with it, and so we will. We are um, in the middle of our sermon series on Mark's gospel. You see the title up there immediately, The Urgency of Jesus. And if there was ever an urgent passage in the gospel, perhaps it was this one that we have read um, this morning. But at the same time, it's, it's a little strange. It's a little out of place. It's kind of hard to make sense of it. And so um, what I would like to do is just to set it in its context um, and then zoom in a little bit and see exactly perhaps what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. If you remember from Father Tripp's sermon last week, um, we saw that Jesus was once again teaching about his coming suffering and death. And in fact, uh, this... this um, this section of Mark's gospel, this act two, if you will, of Mark's gospel is, is just that. That's the main focus. Jesus teaching his re- the readers of Mark's gospel, teaching his disciples what the Messiah actually means, what he is called to actually do, that he would not be this um, political conquering ruler type Messiah, but instead he would be a Messiah who is a humble servant. And so he's having to actually re-educate his disciples about what it means for him to be the Messiah. And because of that, it means he's going to teach um, quite a few times, three exactly in this section, that the, the Messiah must suffer, the Messiah must die, and then the Messiah will be raised from the dead. And that is what happened in our passage last week. So the disciples hear this, they hear about the suffering and death of the Messiah, and what do they begin to think and talk about? They begin to think and talk about which one of them is the greatest. I'm the best one. No, I'm the best one. Well, I'm going to be the best in God's kingdom. That's the discussion they're having. And Jesus knows it, and he calls them out on it, and they are embarrassed, and rightly so. The re-education must continue. And so if you remember, at the end of the um, readings last week, right before our passage this morning, Jesus calls a child to him, right? And he sets the child down on his knee, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. To receive Jesus, to receive God who sent Jesus, to receive the kingdom, one must be willing to receive one such child in Jesus' name. And children in that day were the lowest of the low. They were the bottom rung on society. And that's what Jesus is saying. If we wish to receive Jesus, we must be willing to receive the lowly and the outcasts. Those are the values of the kingdom. Those, that indicates who is the greatest, not the most powerful, but the one who receives a child in the name of Christ. It's a kingdom of upside-down values. And the disciples and us, we need to be shown exactly what this kingdom looks like. So that's what Jesus is doing in our passage this morning. He's zooming in on this command, receive one such child, receive this little one in my name. He's, he's zooming in and he's going to show us two characteristics of a kingdom that's going to value the lowly, two characteristics of this kingdom um, that we need to realize and embrace. 
So a kingdom of God that is, has these upside-down values is both radically welcoming and at the same time radically exclusive. It's both of these, radically welcoming and radically exclusive. And we're going to dig into that a little bit this morning. Um, I invite you to follow along with me. Um, open your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 38. And I want you to consider with me this sort of welcoming and exclusive kingdom. How do these things jive? What's going on here? Beginning at verse 38 of Mark chapter 9. And so we have John there in verse 38 coming to Jesus. Now, you know John, the, the beloved disciple, the author of the fourth gospel. This is John, one of the um, three closest disciples to Jesus. Um, he comes to Jesus. I think he's probably quite proud. And he says to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." So what do, you, what do you make of this? John comes up to Jesus. He tells them a story about a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. Um, and they ask him to stop. The disciples ask him to stop. What are they thinking? What are they, what are they actually feeling even when they see this happening? Well, do you remember earlier in chapter 9, really not, not very long ago, the disciples were actually trying to cast out a demon, right? And Jesus came upon them and there was a big argument with the disciples, with the, the people of the town. Um, and, and a man comes up to Jesus and he says, look, your disciples are trying to cast this demon out of my son and they can't do it. It's not working. And Jesus, he shows a, a slight hint of frustration and he proceeds to cast out the demon himself. And so now here we have just a few verses later, the disciples presumably walking along the road and, and they see a man, a stranger, and he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And guess what? It's working. It's working. This man who is not one of them, he's not one of the inside 12, he's not one of the, the ones who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, he can do what they cannot. And so they ask him to stop. You've got to stop. You're not one of us. You can't do this. And they report in to Jesus. And they say, we ask him to stop. The only conclusion they can draw is, is he must be an enemy of Jesus. And Jesus' response is, no. Don't stop him. This is a welcoming, a radically welcoming kingdom. Don't stop him. No one could possibly be doing a mighty work in my name and continue to be my enemy. Jesus is saying, you cannot at one and the same time bring me glory by doing works in my name and at the same time be my enemy. It is impossible. No, in fact, someone who is not against us is actually for us. He must be for us. He's doing works in my name. Don't tell him to stop. 
And then he goes on and, and he sets the bar for the kingdom, what seems to be impossibly low. When somebody comes into your house, a guest, you have a visitor, they come to your house, what's pretty much the first, maybe the second, maybe the third question you ask them? Would you like something to drink? Can I get you something to drink, right? Would you like a glass of water? It's just a natural thing. It's what this just natural, easy hospitality. And in fact, in Jesus' culture, it wasn't just natural, easy hospitality. It was expected of you. If I were to visit you in your house, I would expect you to get me a drink. And what Jesus says is anybody who does even such a simple act of hospitality in my name, if he does it for me, if he's motivated by bringing me glory, he will by no means lose his reward. That simple act is an indicator of someone in the kingdom. This is hardly casting out demons. This is getting water. And yet, this is a person who is radically welcomed into the kingdom of God. This is clearly a blow to the disciples' perceived special status with Jesus this radical welcoming nature of the kingdom. It, it challenges those who would seek exclusive status. It challenges those who would regard themselves as more holy. Instead, we're called to look upon others and welcome those who do work in Jesus' name, no matter how different or outrageous they might seem compared to us. It's a radically welcoming kingdom. And yet at the same time, this kingdom is radically exclusive. Let's read on, verses 42 to 48. Um, this is what I like to call the fun passage. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The kingdom of God is exclusive. There is no place in the kingdom for those who would hinder others from knowing Jesus. There is no place in the kingdom for sin and there's no place in the kingdom for the instruments of sin. First, this failure to welcome the little ones, right? That's what it says, whoever causes one of these little ones. And certainly a, a reference back to the child sitting on Jesus' knee. And so you can think the least and the lost, but you can also think those new to the faith. Whoever fails to, to welcome them, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, whoever causes them to walk away from Jesus... Well, friend, you have a dire warning. It is better for you to be drowned with a millstone hung around your neck than to hinder somebody, and especially the least and the lost and the newest to the faith, than to hinder them from knowing Jesus. 
Certainly this is a warning to the disciples who were excluding this man who professed faith in Jesus Christ. A warning to them because they have desire for power and political status that is driving other people out of the kingdom. There's also dire warnings against personal sin and even the instruments of sin in our lives. It's better to cut off your hand than to lose the kingdom of God, to cut off your foot than to lose the kingdom of God. Is your eye causing you to sin? Listen to me. Don't answer like, don't raise your hand. Are your eyes causing you to sin? Pluck them out. It's better to be blind. It's better to be blind than to lose the kingdom of God. Now, to be clear, Jesus speaks in exaggeration here, not expectation. He speaks in exaggeration, not expectation. But at the same time, does it not illustrate the depth and the problem of sin and the exclusiveness of the kingdom? These, these things, these sins are so incompatible with the kingdom, it is better to lose the instrument from your body than to miss the kingdom altogether. Sin, and especially repeated sin, is such a detriment to our walk with God that it is better to put to death the offending instrument than to be excluded from the kingdom. It is an exclusive kingdom and at the same time a welcoming one. Well, so how are we going to to reconcile these two things? Well, it's interesting to note the differences Uh, between these two sections of Scripture. First, consider the the emphasis on the welcome. Where are the disciples looking? When when Jesus is emphasizing the welcoming nature of God's kingdom, where, where are they looking to see examples of this? They're looking outside of themselves, right? They're looking outward in into the world, into others who maybe are not a part of their community. It's the outward gaze of the disciples And they're called to err on the side of being welcoming. Those who are doing the work in the name of Jesus are called, we're called to accept them and welcome them joyfully. We're called, when we're looking at those who are outside of us, we're called to give them the benefit of the doubt, those who are doing work in the name of Jesus. Their worship might be different than ours, their denomination might be different than ours. Their political party might actually be different than ours, but they worship the same Jesus. And we must recognize that, and we must be willing to acknowledge that and to have grace with each other. We're called to be radically welcoming. Now, when we get to the the part where Jesus is, is, is emphasizing the exclusive nature of the kingdom, Where are the gaze of the disciples turned now when Jesus is teaching on this part? They're turned inward, are they not? They're looking at their own hearts. They're considering their own lives. Are the disciples hindering the lowly? Are they hindering new believers from knowing Jesus? They're not considering the qualifications um, of others. They're not evaluating uh, somebody else's qualifications to be a follower of Jesus. They're evaluating their own 
What are our own sins that threaten perhaps to disqualify and exclude us? That's the question Jesus is asking. And so we're called to look inward and gaze inwardly at ourselves with the utmost scrutiny. What sins in our lives are hindering others from seeing the kingdom of God in us? When was the last time you asked yourself that question? What am I doing that might hinder somebody else from knowing Jesus? And then what, hin- what sins are hindering my relationship with God? What sins are hindering my ability to enter his kingdom? And how do we treat this problem? Well, I think it, it, it falls on us to listen to each other, to listen to our brothers and sisters who are maybe followers of Jesus but not part of our community, our immediate community it, it, it calls on us to listen to brothers and sisters who we trust about our own lives and our own personal um, sins. And it's a call on us to repent and confess continually because you will, as you walk with Christ, be made more and more into his likeness, but I promise you, you're not there yet. And you won't be until that day that you find glory in Christ. So let us listen to brothers and sisters. Let us repent of our sinfulness. Let us confess our faith that we might not find ourselves excluded. But then finally, I want to bring this to a point on the very best news that there is. This radical exclusion and this radical welcome are both brought together in Jesus Christ. Did he not take this exclusion on his shoulders? Did he not suffer the cut off hand, the cut off foot, the plucked out eye? Did he not suffer the excruciating pain of the cross? More than that, did he not suffer the excruciating exclusion from God? My God, my God, Jesus cried out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Friends, that exclusion belongs to us. That suffering belongs on our shoulders. And yet Jesus took it on his own. And he did it that we might be radically welcomed into his kingdom. That in fact these sins, for those of us who profess faith in the name of Jesus, these sins would not keep us out of the kingdom that they would be forgiven, that we would be redeemed, that we would be brought into the community of faith, brought into the kingdom of God, that that yes, we might be made more and more in the likeness of Christ, but once and for all, he has died, he has taken the exclusion on his shoulders, that we might be welcomed. What an amazing gift that is. May we take it to heart. May we share that welcome with those who don't know Christ. May we invite them into his kingdom. May we invite them to a place of confession and repentance and a place of welcoming in his name. And so it's my prayer that we would be a community that is so radically welcoming and yet at the same time so exclusive when we look in on ourselves that we would be a people that that give glory and honor to God and to his kingdom and that winsomely Show the world what it means to love and to follow Jesus. Let us pray.